Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. Hi, I'm Lori Wollever, and my latest book is Bourdain, The Definitive Oral Biography. Before diving into this book, I'd like to thank my new sponsor, Bloomist. Bloomist creates and curates simple, sustainable products that inspire you to design a calm, natural refuge at home. I'm excited to announce they've just introduced a new tabletop and kitchen collection that's truly stunning. Surround yourself with beautiful elements of nature when you're cooking, dining, and entertaining, and make nature home. Visit Bloomist.com and use the code COOKERY20 to get 20% off your first purchase or click the link in the show notes. Now on with the show. You've been steeped in all things Tony for a long, long time. You were his assistant for 10 years. You wrote books together, did some traveling with him. But since he died, you've been talking about him making books and making films. I've heard you talk about the numbness and I wanted to ask you, have you had time to grieve? Uh, that's a great question. I think I have. I think the process of making these two books, uh, the, the Bourdain, the Definitive Oral Biography, and before that, uh, World Travel and a Reverent Guide, it is it has been part of my grieving process uh, just to really spend time with all of the work that Tony did. And then also the people that were around him, helping him make that work or be part of his life. So I I think that there has been some numbness for sure. And I've talked about that, but there have also been periods of feeling very in touch with my feelings, especially in the beginning and really throughout the process. You know, the, the other day I was talking to a friend about Tony, just telling just a sort of slight little story and I was amazed to find myself moved to tears. And, and, and these things kind of, they're very unpredictable and they just sort of come up naturally. Uh, something that may not even be a particularly sad story, but just the reminder of the loss and of the, the sort of senselessness of it. So I have had time to grieve. I think that now that both of these books are out in the world and I'll soon get to the end of the period of promotion for the second book, I think that will be sort of a new phase for me in the grieving process of really having made this work to honor Tony and then moving on with my life as much as I can. I kind of feel like at this point, you're almost a vessel for people to express their own sadness in terms of this loss. Do you feel that way? Sometimes I do. Yeah, I have I have definitely met a lot of people, most of them online in one way or another, who just reach out to say that they were very moved by the work that Tony did. They were devastated by his death and that they appreciate that these books and that the documentary film exist and give them some more of Tony and also in some cases a sense of closure or answer some of their questions about the circumstances of his death. So, you know, I I think it's a larger role or it's a larger uh, idea that I'm probably totally comfortable with. The idea of being the vessel, I suppose a vessel makes me feel less sort of squeamish. I mean, he was such a singular person and he had a lot of people around him helping him to execute his vision. And I was one of those people in a way. So, so it's hard for me to accept the idea that that it's just me because it's it isn't. Uh, you know, the filmmakers obviously very much worked on their own. I was 
was a consulting producer for the film. Uh, so I had a part in it, but I am not a filmmaker. Uh, and there are other people who have written about their experiences with Tony. And I, and I expect that that will continue, that there will be more books and more art and more things made in reaction to the impact that Tony had on people. So you worked with Tony on the Leal Cookbook published in 2004. You took the Kitchen Bible recipes and edited them to more of a home cook style recipe. And you also did the recipe editing. Can you talk a little bit about that? This was something that I had done previously. I was Mario Batali's assistant for a long time. And while I worked for him, we made a book called Holiday Food and then uh, the Babo Cookbook, which was really my sort of introduction to the process of making a restaurant book uh, that, that works for a home cook. So I was very comfortable with this idea of talking to cooks and chefs, looking at the notebooks that they keep in the kitchen and figuring out um, how to preserve the essence of a recipe so that the result tastes and looks like the restaurant version. But in some cases, maybe maybe making things slightly more efficient, certainly scaling things way down to make the proportions make sense for a home cook uh, and, and just you know uh, changing the language really. That's that's the real focus is, is changing and adapting the language so that all of the shorthand that happens in kitchens is fully explained to a home cook who doesn't have that experience of working in a restaurant kitchen. Uh, with the case of the Leal cookbook, uh, Tony was very committed to the idea that the recipes really not be simplified in any way, that they really reflect the craftsmanship of what goes on in a restaurant kitchen. And, and so that if somebody really wants to make country pate from scratch or make their own French fries or chocrut or cassoulet, that they're really doing it step-by-step step the way that it's done in a restaurant. It was challenging and it also was a really rewarding project. And I was testing everything at home. So I really, you know, I, I ate so well for that period of a year or so. I had so many dinner parties with the kinds of ingredients and the kinds of techniques that I wasn't typically making for friends. But I was like, yeah, come over. We'll have steaks with uh, escargot and truffle butter and, you know, I'll make <laughs> no french fries. And, yeah. <laughs> so it was a great learning experience for me and really a pleasure to work with Tony. Um, he was completely professional. He was already uh, very much a television presence by then. So he was very, very busy. Most of our work was done by email. And that was that would continue to be the case when I became his assistant. A lot of our communication was not in person because he was uh, such a busy traveler. And I do want to note, you also co-wrote Appetites, which came out in 2016, the family yes. cookbook. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was an amazing opportunity for me and a really fun experience. Tony knew he wanted to do a cookbook, but also knew that he didn't have the time uh, to, to be able to focus on it, uh, to, to do everything that goes into making a cookbook, which as I'm sure you know, is, is quite a lot of things. It's it's really a project management kind of job to, to undertake a cookbook. Not only the writing and the recipes and the editing and the testing, but also photography and food styling and concepts and uh, tone and, and working closely with the editors and with the the publicists and the marketing people. I mean, it's a takes a village type project. So I was really pleased to be trusted with that aspect of of helping Tony, you know, execute this vision. Uh, I did contribute a number of my own recipes to the book. And uh, it really was a dream collaboration in a lot of ways. And it's a book I'm very, very proud of. Bourdain, the definitive oral biography is Tony's story as told by the people who knew and loved him. The people you chose to contribute to this book are a very interesting cross-section of his relationships in life. Everyone from his two ex-wives, Nancy 
and Octavia, uh, his brother Christopher to high school friends, fellow kitchen staff, members of his TV production team, celebrities like Nigella, Eric Repair, and Anderson Cooper, or the publishing contacts he cultivated over 20 plus years of writing. One thing that struck me was three different people could have three different recollections of the same event with Tony. Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny. I I struggled at first with how to reconcile that to keep the narrative sort of feeling true and honest. But the truth is that I think that's the way that that we all kind of process memory and the way that we store things and and choose to remember things. And and, um, it really just kind of reflects the the, the messiness and the, the of reality, which can be a really beautiful thing. Actually, Nigella tells a great story in the book about how to, uh, she told a story at dinner when she first met Tony. And Tony took the essential truth of the story and then kind of tweaked it a little bit and then later retold the story uh, in a way that, that made Nigella more kind of the main character of the story. And it was about, she talked about a practice in France of uh, certain people uh, eating aborted lambs uh, as a, as a sort of, you know, extremely tender lamb uh, and that it was an unusual thing, but it was something that she had heard of and maybe had even participated in herself, but it was, it was more kind of a sociological example. And Tony loved that story and thought it was so fascinating. And, and when he retold it about her, he sort of tweaked it to make it seem as if this was something that Nigella made a regular practice of. Uh, oh. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, you know, people suddenly she became associated with this slightly, uh, for some people, probably a a practice that that might make them a little queasy or a little uncomfortable. And she, you know, eventually she thought it was really funny, the idea that Tony would take the best kernel of a story and then kind of tweak it to make it, uh, you know, the most entertaining or the most sort of shocking or attention grabbing. So the fact that certain people remember things in different ways and, and certainly, and sometimes have different memories than sort of the official Tony version, I think really just speaks to Tony as a storyteller. Tony as somebody who would sometimes sand down the edges of a memory or, uh, you know, combine characters or or just punch things up a bit to make sure that it was the most entertaining and best story. And the essential truth remains, but the details are, are perhaps a little bit uh, in dispute. Uh, you know, I address that in the introduction to the book that, uh, you know, everyone's got their own version of history and, and we can just sort of uh, accept that, uh, you know, one or the other might not be exactly the way things happen, but really it's the, it's the impression that the event or the person made on uh, the teller that that really is important. One episode of Parts Unknown that has stuck with me was the Jason Rezaian. Is that how you pronounce mm-hmm. his last name? Uh, Jason Rezaian. Rezaian. Um, mm-hmm. In the Iran episode, he was the Washington Post bureau chief, and then he was held prisoner in Iran. I credit Tony with feeling like I really got to know Jason and his wife, and I was so distraught when I learned of their imprisonment. In your book, Jason talked about how he had this deep concern that CNN wouldn't end up using the segment because they were worried it would make things worse for him in prison but they went ahead and released the segment. Tony went on Anderson Cooper to talk about it. The show wasn't the reason they got arrested, but it was the thing that made it impossible for them to be ignored. And that right there was the magic of Bourdain. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. He was such a champion of Jason and Yegi. You know, before even before their arrest, he was really impressed with them. He was so pleased to have, you know, been able to meet with them on camera when he went to Tehran in uh, I believe it was 2014. You know, they they hit it off really, really well. And and Jason and Yegi both talk about meeting Tony for television. And I think they didn't expect much. They thought he would sort of swan in and maybe spend a few minutes. And they ended up having a, about a 90 minute conversation. Of course, only a fraction of that, uh, you know, made the cut for the episode, but they really, really hit it off and really had a lot of, a lot in common. And, and Tony did everything he could to, uh, to try and agitate for their release, uh, when, when they were imprisoned. Um, Yegi was released after a few weeks. Uh, Jason was in for, uh, I believe it was 544 days, which is a significant amount of time, uh, you know, with the, with the kind of, of, uh, anxiety and terror and and just not knowing that goes along with that. So Tony ended up publishing Jason's memoir. He wrote about his time in the prison and Tony published it on his own imprint called Anthony Bourdain Books, which was itself an imprint of Echo. I feel like he taught us about food, but he also taught us about historical injustices in the world that needed to be corrected. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He was a voracious reader and uh, very well-versed in certain segments of history. He was very, very interested in American history in the 20th century, uh, you know, Cold War spy stuff, uh, deeply, deeply interested in the war with Vietnam. Uh, but he also was very willing and able to to learn on the fly about anything that was going on in the world in in a place that he was getting ready to travel to. Part of his prep for every episode was to read uh, some fiction or some nonfiction or a historical book about the place he was going to so that he would have a context and an understanding of who the people were and, you know, what they were doing there, uh, how, what the conditions of their lives were and what did they think about when they, you know, when they were uh, writing fiction fiction or, or trying to document their own history. So he was enormously uh, capable of absorbing lots and lots of information very quickly. And his producers would give him a book to read and he would read it overnight and be able to, to speak about it, uh, you know, quite lucidly the next day. It was clear he hadn't just skimmed a book, but he had really absorbed it. He was definitely on the side of the underdog. And uh, he would often talk in his voiceovers about people being sort of crushed under the wheel of whatever it was, you know, fascist governments or unfair uh, repressive regimes or just the realities of an economic situation or the uh, aftermath of a, of a terrible war. He was he he had a real true and deep empathy for people whose lives had been disrupted by forces uh, far outside of their own control. Speaking of those voiceovers, I always thought those were written by his people and he sat down in a studio and read it. But I learned that he watched the footage and did the voiceover just off the cuff. That's right. That's right. Well, he would he would watch the footage and he would write uh, his own voiceover. Uh, there were times when the producers would write a scratch version of the voiceover just to convey to him the the relevant facts that needed to be uh, highlighted in order to make a scene make sense and hang together. And sometimes, uh, you know, Tony would would include that information and sometimes he wouldn't. 
you know, he was very, he was very singular in his vision of how he wanted a show to come across. He was deeply, deeply involved in the editing process. Uh, so he would, he would write his own voiceover, uh, you know, whether or not he had been provided sort of a framework by the producers. Uh, and then sometimes in the booth, he would, he would change it up or he would ad lib. He was really uh, invested in every aspect of the show. Uh, and then of course, there's a lot of off the cuff talking that goes on on camera. And he was somebody who could speak in complete, coherent, uh, often hilarious and very deeply informed paragraphs. So a lot of what goes on on camera is is him just speaking from the gut, speaking from the heart, reacting to a situation in the moment. And it's some of the best quote unquote writing that he's done is, is just the, the writerly way in which he could sum up a situation that was going on around him. I saw his sort of stand-up routine show thing at BAM Brooklyn back in 2016 for Appetites, the cookbook you co-wrote with him. And I've heard you talk about how when you were in the green room, he was like, this is all BS, that people have paid money for me to come and talk, which boggles my mind. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I think that was the first time that I really understood that Tony had, you know, what I think is a pretty common affliction among people who are in the public eye, which is this sense of uh, having an imposter syndrome, you know, sort of not believing one's own good luck uh, that that people are willing to to come and invest time and money to, to hear what you've got to say. So, you know, one being one's own worst critic was definitely something that that Tony experienced. So I think Tony was always striving to be better and holding himself to what was probably an, an impossible standard. So that's, I believe, where that, that imposter syndrome came before he went on stage. Now, once he was on stage, he was brilliant. He was electric, you know, and he sold out every theater on that book tour. He was selling out two, 3,000 seat theaters and people just couldn't get enough of him. But for his own self-assessment, I think there was a sense that I could be doing better or I'm not doing it as well as the people whom I really admire, or I, I feel that I'm a fraud, you know, which I, which I think is, a very, again, a, a very common thing among people in the public eye. In his day-to-day, -day, suicide was almost shtick. Did you ever catch any serious intention under the levity of talking about suicide? No, I never did. You know, I was I was very aware that this was a very easy joke uh, for Tony. I mean, almost a cliche at some point to just say, oh, my flight is delayed. I want to kill myself. Or, oh, this hamburger is cold. I want to kill myself. You know, it just was like an easy shorthand for like, this is my hyperbolic expression of dissatisfaction. We can only speculate, but no Knowing him as I did and, and knowing what I know, I, I, I truly don't believe that his death was a long premeditated act. I think it was a, a spontaneous, terrible uh, decision made in a moment of loneliness and, and anger. You know, I, I do think that he had an emotional darkness. I do think that uh, like so many people, I think he had, uh, you know, times of depression, times of uncertainty about life. But I, I do not believe uh, in my gut that this was something that he had planned in any way you know, it's just based on the, the conversations that I had with him in that week and the conversations that other people I know had with him in that week, he was very much planning uh, a return to New York. So, you know, I was making dentist appointments and haircut appointments and, and scheduling lunches and things for the following week. So, you know, I, I think he just had a really a, a tough and lonely uh, moment of desperation, which is, you know, incredibly heartbreaking. What was one thing you learned that you didn't know before putting this book together? Oh, so many things. You know, I, I didn't know very much at all about Tony's mother, Gladys, who was a, a 
figure who loomed large in his life, despite sort of not being uh, present day to day. But uh, I learned quite a bit about her from Tony's brother, Christopher, who was extraordinarily helpful in putting this book together. I I learned that, that Gladys took great pains to conceal her Judaism, even from her own family. I'm sure her husband knew, but she changed the spelling of her last name from Saxman, S-A-C-H-S-M-A-N to Saxon, S-A-X-O-N. And it doesn't get much waspier than that, right? <laughs> it's Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and she she was very sort of elusive about where she grew up, uh, which was in the Bronx, but she sort of implied that it was actually the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And she just took great pains to sort of repress that part of her background, which, as Christopher explained, was about, uh, you know, redlining and about very real prejudices in, in this country in the 1950s and 60s. So she just felt that it was best for her and her future to to present as uh, as a wasp and um, and it was something that Tony and his brother didn't even realize until they were in their teens. That was very interesting to me that she had such an investment in sort of curating uh, the, the the self that she put out to the world. And I see some reflection in the way that Tony uh, presented himself. You know, some of the guys that I spoke with uh, that he worked with in kitchens in the 80s and 90s talked about Tony kind of curating this image of himself as, uh, I mean, he certainly did get involved with heroin and he certainly did have a, a heroin addiction that he wrote about himself in Kitchen Confidential. But a number of them talked about seeing Tony kind of, uh, you know, taking up with heroin as a way to curate an image of cool and to align himself with some of his sort of downtown New York punk heroes. And that it was always a bit of an act, you know, that he wanted to present himself as this sort of borderline criminal downtown New York junkie figure, because that was a cool image that he admired in other people. So I think there is, there's an interesting parallel there, you know, uh, for somebody who was by all accounts and and by my own experience, a quite socially awkward at times and quite shy and reserved. Uh, This was a way for him to sort of overcome that, to curate his image of himself with, you know, swords and talk of violence and tattoos and, you know, drug addiction and all these things that sort of uh, allowed him to leave that, that shy persona behind a little bit. So food is an art form, so it can be a jumping off point for exploration into anything you want to talk about, the history of a place, politics, religion, etc. That's all written into the cuisine of a location. He was revolutionary when exploring street food, and it was an access point that everyone could afford. He changed the way I looked at food. Yeah, his book, Kitchen Confidential, and before that, the essay, Don't eat before reading this that was published in the New Yorker in 1998. I think those two things really sent a shockwave through the food media establishment as it existed at that time. Uh, I was myself a fledgling food writer. And I remember that the only way to get a placement, uh, you know, to get a pitch picked up by a magazine was to write about things that had to do with luxury and refinement and Western cuisine. And, you know, there were, there were stories around, Uh, very expensive food festivals or restaurants on golf courses. You know, there was just, it was all about the surface and all about the highest end and the highest aspirations of of food and cooking. And then Tony came along talking about, A, the way that things really work and even the finest dining kitchens, you know, sort of the ugly truths or just the, just the truths uh, about the way that food is made and served in, in restaurants 
And then further to, to go out into the world and to start looking with the same eye at, you know, affordable street level food that would never get a New York Times review or a Michelin star or any of the other uh, traditional signifiers of, of quote unquote good food. I think it, that really, really, it, it did. It shook up the, the food media establishment and shook up people's ideas of, of what was worth seeking out and what was worth writing about, talking about, traveling for. You know, I, I don't know that people were really traveling en masse before the year 2000 uh, to go to places in Asia that had such uh, vibrant street food cultures. I just think it wasn't, it was sort of an afterthought. And, and Tony uh, moved that type of food into the, the main event category for a lot of people. One of my all-time favorite episodes of Parts Unknown was when Tony caught up with President Obama in Hanoi. Um, mm. During the pandemic, my husband and I would talk about how we missed Tony and his rants and what editorial he could have contributed to the political and social landscape. It's it's just heartbreaking. Absolutely. It is, it is, you know, there are so many reasons that it's heartbreaking that Tony isn't around, but I so wish for his sake and for the world's sake that he could be here during the pandemic. And by his sake, I mean, he was somebody who had a really funny interest in medical oddities. And uh, he wrote a, a little book about Typhoid Mary for a series of urban historicals. It didn't get a lot of uh, attention, but this was a book that he wrote after Kitchen Confidential. And he was just fascinated by, uh, you know, the intersection of uh, this woman who was a cook and who was sort of defiantly spreading typhoid around, you know, the rich families of New York whom she cooked for. She was very, very unwilling to to be quarantined and tested. And so he did a lot of research into, um, you know, the idea of an epidemic in New York. So I just, I have such a, I have this fantasy of Tony coming back and, you know, me getting to be the person that's like, dude, there's been a pandemic for two years, you know, because I think he would be just from an intellectual standpoint, a, a curiosity standpoint, it would be so interesting for him to live through a pandemic. Uh, but, but more than that, you know, he is, he is a voice of reason. He was a voice of reason. He's somebody who, again, had a lot of respect for and interest in the medical community. He was somebody who was not afraid to get vaccines. I mean, he was constantly getting travel medicine, which often included uh, boosters and updates to his uh, all kinds of vaccines so that he could travel to places in the world where, where those different things were a risk. If he believed in something, he would take to the airwaves, he would take to Twitter. So I would like to think that he would have been sort of a nonpartisan voice of reason, uh, you know, with respect to mask mandates and social distancing and certainly vaccines and just having trust in our institutions to do the right thing to try and you know get this um, pandemic behind us so he you know he wasn't a huge uh lockstep believer in everything that governments did by any stretch but i think when it comes to uh you know listening to institutions like the cdc about vaccines i, I would have to believe that he would be on the side of, of logic and science and reason now to my segment called Dream Dinner Party, where I ask you, who would you most want to invite to your dream dinner party and why? And for this segment, it can only be one person. Oh. <laughs> Drum well, roll. Uh, <laughs> 
this is maybe uh, a cliched answer. You know, I, I would like to make dinner for Tony. If I could, if I could have one more sit down with him and talk about everything that's happened since he left and, you know, try and convey to him somehow how important he was to so many people and that it was, that it would be worth him sticking around. I, you know, it, I would cook anything, you know, I know one of the, one of the recipes that um, both really loved from appetites was uh, linguine with clams, just a classic butter, white wine, garlic, herbs, clams, a little bit of clam stock. And uh, I would happily make that. So it's a bit of a pain to source the clams depending on where you are, but I, God, I would make that in a heartbeat, you know, and, uh, and he wasn't a fan of dessert. So in fact, the dessert chapter in our book is really just a a photo of a, of a wheel of Stilton. (laughs) I'd bring in a wheel of Stilton and, and we'd have the pasta and, and I would try and make that dinner party go on as long as I possibly could. Where can we find you on the web and social media? So my favorite platform that I spend way too much time on is Instagram. And my handle is Lori Wolliver, just my first and last name together on Instagram. And I'm also on Twitter under the same handle. I'm I'm less active there. Uh, I I find that Instagram is a great platform for visual jokes and, uh, you know, some light self-promotion. But mostly I just try and make people laugh. Uh, And then I have a website, which is lauriewolliver.com. And that's got a lot of uh, the writing that I've done, information about the books, uh, you know, video stuff. Uh, and just a little bit about. What's coming up next for you? A vacation? No, not, not necessarily. I have started while working on a cookbook with a really brilliant baker named Richard Hart, who is British, but he spent six years in Northern California as the head baker at Tartine. And now he has his own bakery in Copenhagen called Hart Bakery. It's under the auspices of the Noma Group. And so we are working on a book about bread uh, and it'll have about 55 to 65 bread recipes peas with a big emphasis on sourdough. That's a plug for that. So that's really the the main project. And I've started to talk to some people about different uh, television things, uh, a scripted series and uh, and a nonfiction sort of documentary series. So it's very early days for both of those things, but I'm really excited to to get a little bit deeper into the world of television. To purchase Bourdain, the definitive oral biography and support the podcast, head on over to cookerybythebook.com. And thank you so much, Lori, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Follow Cookery by the Book on Instagram. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book.